0: From east to west and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello, and welcome to Episode 2 of the Diz Unplug Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host and producer, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today?
1: Oh, I'm very good. It feels like it's been... uh a week since we've talked. Yeah, Maybe right. even more.
0: Yeah, well, you know, and the funny thing is that week just went by in just minutes almost for it's, me. It's
1: amazing how <laughs> time works like that. But I know. I, I am very good.
0: Good, good. Yes, yes so am I. Good. And I. And I want to thank all our listeners who listened to the first episode and came back exactly. for episode two. And we hope you brought friends with you.
1: Yes, and if you didn't <laughs> this time around, then uh, do it the next time around. And uh, just... Think of it as like the power of 10 style. So every time you listen to this, think about uh, passing it along to 10 more people and make sure they pass it along to 10 more people and uh, then we'll get to
0: keep doing this. (laughs) So. <laughs> exactly that would be great. We'll, we'll be able to finish out the story of Disney World Hopefully. it'll take years <laughs> so, and Now in our last episode our first episode we, uh, we made allusion to the PBS documentary um, Walt Disney and American Experience and I talked about it at great length on our uh, on the dis unplugged um, podcast Disneyland Edition and um, but I wanted to get your opinion. Uh, what did you think of it, Craig? and i'll I'll talk a little I'll share some of my thoughts too. Yeah, uh,
1: I mean, if you couldn't really get my my feel of it from the briefness that we did mention in it, uh, i I definitely applauded it for what they were trying to do. They had a lot of information to pack into that fourish hours of walt disney's life and uh, i mean whenever you try to take on something like that of course there is going to be complete uh, important aspects of it that you're just going to skip all over like you mentioned in the last episode it just we completely had barely any mention to no mention at all of audio animatronics which I'm just, it's kind of mind boggling that that didn't have more of an issue. Instead, we spent way too much time uh, going, diving into the strike and how that affected Walt Disney and then just set this really negative tone that a lot of people picked up on. Um, Not necessarily that they ended up hating walt disney because of it or anything but there was there was absolutely inconsistencies about the documentary as a whole and it started to lose the whole documentary feeling to it whenever it got way too opinionated and uh, if you're gonna go opinionated in one direction and uh, as uh, then you have to be able to balance it out on the other end. And I don't I don't feel like it did it much, but where the documentary really succeeded for me was uh, they showed a ton of beautiful clips that were mm-hmm. completely restored. Um, just phenomenal. Uh, if they wanted to just put together a documentary showing all this B-roll over and over again, I would sit there and watch that uh, multiple times. But uh, for right now, I... I don't think I will be revisiting the documentary anytime soon, unless it's for uh, a little bit more research for something we're doing. And that's not to say that it was bad at all. They, they worked really, really hard on it. And you could tell that the people surrounding it did, but uh, on the other aspect of it, I, I just finally reread the Neil Gabler book um, mm-hmm. about Walt. And, you know, cause the first time around I read it and, I wasn't super impressed so gave it another shot and still just it's not there for me and that's kind of how I felt about the documentary if you want to watch a better documentary uh, definitely check out the uh, in their words that would they did about Jim Henson the very uh, next night I believe after the the Walt Disney documentary aired. Um, yeah, that, that was really well done. Yeah, that was well done. Uh, I almost wish that we could get one of those with Walt now that might be a little, you know, take even less time to explain more about the person, but definitely
0: definitely hit on those highlights.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
0: Yeah, I, I felt, first of all, I agree with you that going into just doing a four-hour documentary on Walt Disney, that that was a tough that was a monumental task and they i think they were no matter what they did they were going to it was going to be divisive because they would if they went too far in the positive people would say oh they it was all pixie dust and they only wanted to show the the positive things and then that would leave out you know uh, people would be upset by that and and then if they focused way on the negative then of course you know, the, the Disney fans would say, hey, what's going on here? And I do think they went in trying to be so cautious at giving a balanced portrait. They went too far into the negative and didn't give that balance because they were worried about being accused of of being too saccharine yeah. about it. And I understand that because
1: <laughs> it's I mean, it, at least for me at times, whenever I'm doing reviews and such, it is really easy to start going into the negative direction and really feeding off of that so I totally understand how that yeah. can happen but um, that's also where editors come into play where they fix that from making right. the final project
0: yeah and and they did a lot of armchair psychoanalysis, made a lot of suppositions, read read things into Walt's behavior and personality that had, he had never shared with anybody, he had never said to anybody um you know I had a real problem with that that that's I think what you were saying that's when it diverted from being a documentary exactly and um, and then again if, if you know if you listen to Disneyland show I went through a list of the inaccuracies and actually I have a much larger list I just hit the highlights <laughs> but they you know like the strike they they sh- you know, Walt did not handle that well. I mean, I think anyone would admit it, but yeah. what what they didn't mention, because that was a big part of the documentary, they didn't mention that one of the reasons Walt was so upset was when he was confronted, um, you know, by the organizers. He said, I'm not making this decision on behalf of them. I want them to vote themselves, I want my people to make the decision themselves as to whether they're going to join the union. And if they vote, I'm fine with it, but I am not going to tell them they have to join the union. Yes. And um, none of that, and, and, the, and the organizers said, forget it, you know, we're calling the strike. And, uh, and th- that, th- that wasn't brought out at all. Yeah. and and you know, and then they did, and you know the uh, the way they judged Elias Disney, Walt's father, the, the you know how how cruel he was. Uh, well, we're judging him by 21st century you know norms, and you know back then you know my grandfather was probably around Elias's age, and the stories my father told me of growing up, I was thinking whoa, but that was a lot of that was the way kids were raised yeah. much more sternly, and Walt attributed his father's work ethic and and the sternness and the way he was raised to the man that he was and that a lot of his best qualities came from his father I mean you don't
1: Mm -hmm. have to read even a Walt Disney book just pick up any history book and you'll learn that that was not the easiest period of time for just everyone in America Uh, Yeah, everyone struggled (laughs) and it's Yeah, there is no reason to portray him like that. Just if you're going to portray him just like that, then you also need to definitely report on how everything else was in the time and that it was more normal. Mm -hmm. It just it lost that it lost that history aspect in placing all of this in with the time period, something that was important to do.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and besides overlooking audio animatronics, they, they overlooked the world, New York World's Fair, which was significant. Yep. And also the Walt establishing Cal Arts. Yeah. Because he was so committed to uh, fostering artistic ability in young people. And he left, I think it's like 43% of his estate to establishing Cal Arts. Yeah, um, you know
1: that's just not significant enough to make it into this. So, <sighs>
0: yeah, but anyway, but but um, and I agree with you that watching the seeing those clips, uh, the video and all that, much of which had never been shown publicly before, yeah, uh, was was wonderful. And I did buy the DVD only just because I wanted to have those clips. If nothing else, I'd recommend, though, to folks, if you want to see a really good documentary, look for Walt, the man behind the myth. And they they did a much better job of interviewing people who worked directly with Walt. And they got the story about Walt, not only from Walt himself, but from everybody that worked with him. The list is huge of the folks who worked with him that were interviewed for this and it's very well done. Uh it was disappointing they had so few um interviews with people that actually worked with Walt. They really relied heavily on people that you know were were born after Walter passed away. Yeah, and
1: that's uh, uh, we could go on with this for an hour. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> but anyway, but we want to get into our episode tonight. Yes. So, which is uh, so in our first episode um, last week, Craig and I explored Walt Disney's vision for the future and how his philosophy that there's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow just to dream away permeated not only his plans for Florida, but intertwined into our social consciousness and a belief that we will overcome our problems in the future. So, Walt's vision and innovation was a creative starting point for the Florida Project. The physical starting point for the Florida project was Disneyland, and since the opening day of Disneyland in 1955, Walt was confronted by the urban design problems surrounding the park there was no cohesion or design aesthetic. And Walt was mystified that those who benefited financially from Disneyland's popularity did not follow the same planning and design precedent of Disneyland. And Walt frequently referred to the area outside the berm as a second-rate Las Vegas. So when Walt dedicated Disneyland on July 17, 1955 in Anaheim, It was a new type of amusement park, promising family-friendly entertainment, and quite the opposite of the grubby midways of that era. The public was excited, and Walt Disney, who created fantasy through film and television, was now bringing fantasy to life through Disneyland. And despite some opening day operational challenges, Disneyland was a success, um, this idea that Walt had turned around in his mind for years had become a reality. So, with Disneyland's success, Walt and Roy were looking for ways to defray the costs of developing the new technologies Walt needed for his visionary plans. Walt had hired a large pool of talent to develop and build Disneyland. And although some of them could be kept busy working on future attractions for the park, it wouldn't provide enough work to keep everyone Walt had hired busy. So then along came the 1964-65 World's Fair, and that provided the perfect opportunity for Walt and his Imagineers and artists to develop new attractions with corporations paying the bills. And it would also introduce the Disney brand of entertainment to a whole new audience since most of Disneyland's visitors lived west of the Mississippi. And to learn more about Walt Disney and the New York World's Fair, please check the Diz podcast Disneyland Edition archives for my segment titled The World's Fair Comes to Disneyland.
1: And of course, you can find that at disunplug.com along Excellent. with everything else that is mm-hmm. Diz related.
0: <laughs> That's right. For every show that we do. Yes. <clears throat> Now, all of the Disney attractions at the World's Fair were wildly popular. um, However, a World's Fair is a temporary event. So, if Walt Disney wanted a permanent presence in the eastern United States, he would have to consider building something permanent. Now, within a year of Disneyland's opening, Walt and Roy received many letters from government officials throughout the eastern United States proposing a Disneyland-type park in their state or city. And almost all of the letters received the polite response that Disney was not interested. However, periodically one of the offers would capture Walt's interest, causing he and Roy to look more into it. And that's what we're going to look at in our episode here called You Can't Top Pigs with Pigs. So and that quote comes from um what walt said the uh, um three little pigs was a wildly successfully um a, you know silly symphony and so it was so successful that all the theater owners were crying out give us more pigs give us more pigs and so finally they did do a sequel to the three little pigs it was nowhere near as popular and that's when walt said you can't top pigs with pigs and he vowed he would not do a sequel except for a very very good
1: reason you know what as much Mm -hmm. as i'm excited about the content that we're having in all of these shows i'm almost loving the names more than anything else
0: (laughs) So, Now, one of the first sites Walt and Roy looked at was New Jersey Meadows near New York City. And in an interview, Roy said, Walt gave the Meadows proposal a careful look. But he finally decided that there would have to be some method for controlling the weather, a vast dome or some such thing. So when the financial backers looked into the cost of such an undertaking, they lost their courage pretty fast. Just imagine how much of a train wreck that would have been. Uh-huh. But you, but but Walt didn't. As we're going to learn, Walt didn't lose that idea of a dome over over at least a portion of a city. True. <laughs> But another proposal came from Seagram's, the well-known liquor company, about an idea to develop tourist attractions at Niagara Falls. Um, Despite having banned alcohol from Disneyland, Walt Disney and his wife Lillian and Roy Disney and his wife Edna flew to Niagara Falls in August 1963 to meet with local officials. Now, the Disney's checked into Sheraton Brock Hotel and had dinner at the home of Paul Scholkampf, who was a local business leader. And the next morning, they toured the falls with Mayor Franklin Miller. And Walt and his entourage were reportedly swarmed by tourists who recognized him due to his many appearances on his Disney television program. And Walt viewed Niagara Falls from the Seagram's observation tower and was impressed with their beauty. Now, Walt denied he was considering Niagara as a location for a second Disneyland, but he did say he was considering another type of project for the area. And the media report stated Walt was discussing plans for expanding the Seagram Tower, which is a local attraction opened in 1962, um, by building a moon trip attraction on the tower's site, similar to the Rocket to the Moon attraction in Disneyland's Tomorrowland this plan never materialized because disney and seagrams could not come to terms on a licensing agreement Hmm. so
1: i'm gonna have to ask you a question here something Mm -hmm. that i feel like i should know the answer to but i just don't um has disney ever successfully planted one of their attractions in somewhere else just as a singular attraction um obviously not like the world's fair because we all know about that but something like this where they they were trying to work it out that they could just have one disney attraction there has that ever happened anywhere
0: it did once and at one time when when disneyland was growing so successful and they needed more attractions and they needed them fast there were three atopias at Disneyland. There was the Tomorrowland Utopia. There was the Fantasyland Utopia across from Matterhorn. Those years ago were combined into one. Then down near where It's a Small World currently is, there was Midget Utopia. Okay, And that, that, that was a tiny little one. It was electric run. They ran sort of on a bar in the middle. Um, the cars only held children. This was sort of for the you know, like the five in undercrowd Yeah. And it could hold two children. Well, when they needed the room to start building the show building for It's a Small World, when they knew they were bringing it from the New York World's Fair, they had to take out utopia And so Walt and Roy donated it to Marceline, Missouri, their boyhood home. And utopia ran there for several years. And uh, unfortunately... Um, Utopia is an extremely expensive attraction to keep running. And after Walt passed away, there were no more funds allocated um, for Midget Utopia. So it fell into disrepair. But within the last couple of months, the... um, Walt Disney Hometown Museum in Marceline has started a Kickstarter fund, and they want to restore and bring back the uh, the Midgetopia.
1: Oh, I completely forgot about that. I remember seeing that all over social media.
0: Yeah, yeah, and they were even at the D23 Expo. Yeah. I I talked with some of them about restoring. Um, mentioned Utopia, and they even had one of the original cars on display there.
1: I I should have got to walk around the the showroom floor a little bit more than I did.
0: Well, see, I I came in at 8 in the morning. Yes, you did, yeah. (laughs) And um, got around. That was the only way I saw them all. (laughs) But, so, um... So, another proposal came from Joyce C. Hall, and folks may know him as the founder of Hallmark Cards and was one of the first licensees for Walt Disney. And both had very similar childhoods, each spending their childhood in poverty and in the Midwest. Hall was in Nebraska, and Disney in Illinois and Missouri. So Hall invited Disney to participate in a 100-acre project that would revolve around Walt's love of nature and would include an international-themed village, which is a concept that would become the World Showcase at Epcot Center. Oh, wow. And you know, we talked on the last show house a lot of Walt's ideas for Florida started in earlier projects. Um, and, and this is an example of one of them. Now, this project was to be in an economically impoverished area of Kansas City called Signboard Hill. And Signboard Hill would be a planned community and the home of Hallmark's new headquarters, Crown Center. So Walt Disney was very intrigued by this project since it was in Kansas City where he spent some important years of his life. And he was considering his own planned community that would become part of his Florida project. So Walt signed on as a consultant on the project. And Walt gave Hall some advice based on his own experiences building Disneyland. Buy enough land to create a strong buffer between the Hallmark property and surrounding landowners. So ultimately, Walt decided not to participate in the Signborn Hill project. But he did take his own advice in building his Florida project and bought enough land to create a buffer between himself and the Orlando landholders.
1: So did anything ever come from this Walmart? Sorry, Walmart, Hallmark.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <project>? <laughs> they, they actually did build it. Okay. Yeah, but but Walt, um, Walt didn't um say it with Hallmark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Walt considered another Missouri location for a project, and we just spoke about it a few minutes ago, his own boyhood home of Marceline, Missouri. Um, Now, uh, most, most Disney fans know that the Disney family lived on a farm in Marceline from the time Walt was five years old until he was nine, and although he lived there only four years, almost five, it had a lasting impact on his life. Walt always considered Marceline his hometown. And his memories of Marceline's Main Street was the inspiration for Disneyland's Main Street USA. And Walt built a replica of the red barn at his home on Carrollwood Drive to serve as his workshop for his Carolwood Pacific Backyard Railroad. And that barn can now be visited at Griffith Park in Los Angeles. And you definitely
1: should make a trip at some point out to see it if you're ever in... Los Angeles, it's you know, it's it's not like the same feeling as going and stepping foot in Disneyland and being able to feel Walt's presence in there, but it's still just I mean, it's it's incredible to walk around there.
0: Oh yeah, well, when you think that that's something Walt built with his own own hands, exactly, and all of the uh, you know the workbenches Walt worked at those, Walt touched them, and you know, so I mean, that really is, I mean, that that is Walt. It's inspiring. Mm -hmm. And then right across the way is the uh, carousel at Griffith Park that Walt famously took his daughters to on Sundays and would watch them ride the carousel. And he sat on the benches eating popcorn as he thought of ideas for a a park where families could go on rides together.
1: And I still have to make my pilgrimage
0: there. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, actually, I've never been to the carousel when it's open. Hmm. So I have to go when it's open. So, Interesting. Yes. <laughs> so so um, Walt always wanted to do something positive for Marceline. So during a visit to Marceline in 1956, Walt Walt stayed at the home of a local businessman, Rush Johnson, uh, primarily because it was one of the few air-conditioned homes in Marceline. And late one night, Walt explained his idea to Johnson of opening an attraction on his old family's farm. And it would be a turn-of-the-century working farm doubling as a tourist attraction because Walt really believed that uh, as cities grew, Children would never know what it was like to, to plant something and watch something grow. And he wanted them to have this experience through um, this working farm in Marceline. So Walt hired the firm owned by Harrison Buzz Price to conduct a feasibility study of the project. And Buzz Price was very well known to Walt as he had done the feasibility study advising Walt to build Disneyland in Anaheim. However, unlike the study for Disneyland, the study for the Marceline project showed it was unlikely to be profitable. So, But rather than giving up on the project, Walt proceeded with the project, deciding to operate it as a not-for-profit organization. And one of Walt's key strategies for a project for this project was a strategy he would use for the Florida project. Walt wanted to purchase his family farm and surrounding land without using his name – And he was rightfully concerned that if he used his name, it would drive up the price of the land. (laughs) And to accomplish this, Rush Johnson established a nonprofit corporation for purchasing the land. And the corporation would then sell the land to the Disney organization. So Rush traveled several times to Disney's Burbank office to discuss the plans. And Disney developed blueprints for the site. However, after Walt's death in 1966, this project lost its priority with the Disney company. And after a time, Roy believed all the company's resources had to be focused on building Disney World, and the Marceline project was canceled. Rush Johnson repurchased the land and later gave it to his daughter as a wedding gift.
1: That's a nice gift.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, and I believe she works at the Walt Disney Family Museum, and they still own it. The property that's
1: perfect. Have you uh, have you ever seen the blueprints for the site that you mentioned? I've
0: seen some of them. Yeah.
1: Yeah. What were some of the features really with it?
0: It it really was that there would be a blacksmith there. There would be you know like tractors and things like that that you would that that you'd learn how to churn butter. I mean, it was the whole experience. um, I think I could get on board with that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It reminded me very much of like Williamsburg. That's exactly you know, what that I was kind thinking. Kind of an experience. Yeah, yeah.
1: Which I mean, it's also obviously Williamsburg has its distinct history, but at the same time, Williamsburg is still a very popular, uh, a very popular tourist destination, and it's not just for the fact that Bush Gardens is there. So I, I don't know. I think that something actually could have happened yeah. with Marceline.
0: Oh, I think so too. I think it would have been very. I, I, I think you know. I don't think it would have been profitable, but I think it would have been popular. Yeah, uh, eventually. Especially
1: because they could have marketed it. Sometimes it just takes a while to get profits. Yeah,
0: yeah. So. And I, I believe it's my understanding, because um, th- that th- what's left of the, uh, t- of Mitchell's Utopia is stored in the barn on Walt's prop, on Walt's family's old property. Oh, okay. Yeah. So as they as they um, g- wait for the funds to restore yeah. it the cars are in there and things like that. Nice. So, yeah. So, um, so as close as the Marceline project came to being built, there was another that was more developed and closer to being built than even Marceline, and that is the St. Louis Waterfront Project. And Walt's deep felt connection to Missouri, no doubt had a part to play in his interest in this project. Mm-hmm. So in March of 1963, Walt was contacted by St. Louis officials to discuss their plans to revitalize the city's waterfront. And this huge project would include the construction of a new downtown stadium for the St. Louis Cardinals baseball team and the Gateway Arch. And the city officials contacted Walt to ask his assistance in producing a film that would be used to celebrate the city's 200th anniversary in 1964. Now, Walt was interested, but he suggested they consider a larger scale project, such as an entertainment project based on Mark Twain, the Western expansion and the Mississippi River, rather than just a film. So St. Louis Mayor Raymond Tucker and a delegation of business leaders very quickly traveled to Burbank to discuss the project in more detail. Have you ever been to St. Louis?
1: I actually have never been to St. Louis. Oh, okay. I've I whenever I lived kind of in the Cincinnati area, it was always one of those ideas that eventually I would just drive westward enough that I could make a swing down whenever I was going back and forth between Florida and, and Cincinnati. But no, I I've never made it there. So one one day I am road yeah. tripping to there.
0: Yeah, I've I've been there. I've I've gone in the arch and um yeah you know i i've seen where this project was going to be i and all that didn't even realize
1: that this was all centered around that like i he, i assumed the arch was much older
0: yeah no no yeah i remember when i i remember when I was a boy and we'd see the little uh we'd see the film loops in school of them show, showing them building the arch wow and all that it was neat so um now, when the city delegation came out there, Walt was very pleased with the city leader's response. He said, it's, a, it's great to see a city that has recognized its needs and is doing something about it. Lots of cities talk, but fail to act. <laughs> um, now, the meeting appeared to go well, and Mayor Tucker later reported that Walt was personally interested in the project. And the St. Louis delegation toured Disneyland and spent several hours discussing plans with Walt. And Walt stated that a number of questions still have to be answered before he could decide whether he would participate in the project. We want to find out how many people will come here, where they'll be going, and what we would do with the place in the winter. The whole area should have a broad appeal to family groups, not specifically just for children or for adults, Walt continued. Now, Walt was impressed with the size of the riverfront area and very pleased to see it was near the new interstate highway system. So a few weeks later, in mid-April of 1963, Walt sent one of his business executives as one of his vice presidents, Don Tatum and Buzz Price, whose firm conducted the feasibility study for Disneyland, as I mentioned, to St. Louis to tour the prospective site. Walt became so interested, he, his wife Lillian, their daughter Sharon, and her husband Robert Brown traveled to St. Louis for a tour of the waterfront area. And after the tour, Walt suggested that in consideration of St. Louis's cold winters, a year-round indoor amusement facility on the 160,000-square-foot site may be their best option. So this is going to be pretty large. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, At the end of his visit, Walt explained most of his creative team was planning for the 1964 New York World's Fair, and Buzz Price's firm, the Economics Research Associates, ERA, had only just begun their feasibility study. So both of these situations would delay an immediate commitment from Walt. So without agreeing to anything, Walt and his family returned home. Now, in August, the report from ERA was made public. Buzz Price had concluded that Riverfront Square, as the project was now being called, could be self-supporting and had the potential to show a modest profit. The report assumed 40% of the square's income would come from dining to include 25 to 30 separate kitchens and another 20% would come from retail sales and the remainder from entertainment activities, which would include a highly specialized theater possibly featuring audio animatronics. So on November 18th, Walt returned to St. Louis. Since he had stated that the results of the economic study would play a major part in his decision, and because the report had indicated the project would be feasible, a St. Louis project executive, O.O. O. McCracken, prematurely announced that Disney had committed to participating in the Riverfront Square (laughs) project. So, Walt made it clear he was very interested but had not yet committed to the project. However, he did outline in more detail his vision of Riverfront Square if it was built and operated by the Disney Corporation. Those are key words. Built and operated. Those will become very important later on in this saga. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, during this planning session, the first controversy was born. During a news conference, Walt stated liquor could not be served on the project site if he were a participant. This is not surprising, since Walt had prohibited sales of alcoholic in public areas of Disneyland to promote a family atmosphere. But St. Louis was not Anaheim, and we all know who St. Louis is home to, don't we, Craig? Oh, yeah, Anheuser-Busch. Exactly. The Anheuser-Busch Beer Company. Preston Estep, one of the project's chief backer, was quoted in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch as saying, Any plans developed by Mr. Disney or anyone else would not be approved if they did not provide for the sale of beer, wine, and liquor in the restaurants and other appropriate entertainment facilities in the area. Yeah, and I
1: honestly, if this would have ever came to fruition, I just, I wouldn't be able to foresee it being, and I wouldn't be able to see it being in St. Louis and not having any type of Anheuser-Busch beers,
0: and and Walt saw the wisdom in what you were saying, as as we're going to learn. A compromise was reached. Okay. So, um, so but. This disagreement continued to escalate in the public, and it all came to a head at a St. Louis dinner party. See what I did there? It came to a head. Oh, I see it. Yes. Uh-huh. Culminating at a St. Louis dinner party where Walt Disney and his party and Auguste Bush Jr. were in attendance. And Bush loudly proclaimed Walt's no alcohol idea was foolish. While Walt was offended by this, he was the creator of Disneyland. Its success proved he was an expert at knowing what people did and did not want when visiting an amusement attraction, and he wondered what did these people in St. Louis know about running this type of an amusement attraction. Huh? Soon, Walt Disney's executives knew the alcohol issue would be a major roadblock for Riverfront Square. However, despite reports to the contrary, because this has been an urban legend that the the alcohol no alcohol policy is what sunk this deal. Walt worked out a compromise with the St. Louis Project officials over the sale of alcohol. So the alcohol policy did not derail Riverfront Square. Well what another another issue would come that would
1: achieve that. What was the compromise, do you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, we'll get into that. Walt, Walt had a um had a news conference okay. where he explained the compromise. Okay. Next, Walt told St. Louis officials he would have to be the sole builder and operator of the amusement facility. We've got to be responsible for the whole thing if it's got the Disney name connected with it, he explained. Walt had learned his lesson from building Disneyland, and Walt's insistence on control had become a common demand for all projects. Even with this demand, St. Louis and Walt Disney agreed to move forward on the project. But you can already see, you know, the there's warning signs coming up here. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, Now, a strong indication the proposal had advanced came in 1964, when the New York Times reported the Riverfront Square project was scheduled for completion in 1966 or 1967. Well, Walt returned to St. Louis in March of 1964 and attended a press conference at the Bel Air East Motel and described his vision for the Riverfront Square project, which be- would be located next to the new downtown baseball stadium. So an observation floor capped the building. With picture windows overlooking the arch, the floor was divided into a formal restaurant banquet space, and a 150-seat cocktail lounge that would sell wine, alcohol, and of course beer brewed by the Bush family. Guests could enter this floor directly by using special elevators and bypassing the amusement areas entirely. Or with a hand stamp, guests could pass from the amusement areas into the restaurant and cocktail lounge. So this design allowed Walt Disney to compromise and allow for the sale of alcohol within the structure, but it created an invisible barrier between the bar and the family-oriented park. So so adults could pass freely between the two areas. Okay. So only after this proposal was explained, signifying the working compromise between Walt's original no alcohol position and that of Auguste Bush, did the presentation move on to the amusement areas of Riverfront Square. Huh. Now, looking back at this news conference, it appears several attractions later built at Disneyland and Walt Disney World were originally conceived for the Riverfront Square project. So, so listen and see if any of these sound familiar to you. Okay. So, so the project would be completely enclosed in a five-story building, which would include at least one floor below ground covering two city blocks. And it would feature rides and attractions themed around the history of St. Louis, the Mississippi River, and New Orleans and it would be totally unique and would make parts of Disneyland obsolete. The concept of an is- indoor Disney park would be revisited decades later as Disney Quest. Huh. So. Well, uh yeah, um
1: this Disney Quest did definitely not ever make any part of Disneyland
0: obsolete, <laughs> so No. Ugh. No, but the concept was there i remember seeing it when i was in chicago they had an enormous disney quest there
1: i I remember uh hearing about that one but obviously never getting over there to see that uh no i mean it's i i think there is still potential out there one day to do a disney quest style a style attraction that can work out there but you can't you can't cut corners with it. Like what ended up happening to ours and just let it go into disarray. And, but mm-hmm. the technology that they put inside there just dwindled down and died to the point that it was completely outdated and laughable. Um, yeah, it, it still is possible. And I'm sure Disney's going to try it again in the future. Uh, especially knowing that this is an idea that came from
0: Walt one day.
1: If he had the yeah. idea, there's a way around making it happen.
0: Oh, absolutely. I agree. And, and and Disney likes to revisit ideas. Yes, they do. <laughs> so, um, now, like Disneyland, the Riverfront Square could accommodate high school graduation parties and would be attractive to families. Now, at the first level below ground, guests would board a Blue Bayou boat ride and explore a pirate's lair. The, the plans indicate this pirate ride was to be called the Jean Lafitte Adventure Ride. Now, in 1967, this attraction would open at Disneyland as Pirates of the Caribbean and the adjacent Blue Bayou Restaurant. So we're lucky that that actually didn't ever come to be. Yeah, really. (laughs) Now, on the ground level, guests would enter a town square similar to Disneyland's Main Street USA, which Disney promotional materials described on one side would be Old St. Louis and on the other, Old New Orleans, with a pre-Civil War haunted house nearby. Elsewhere, there would be theaters with depictions of the Lewis and Clark's expedition, the Louisiana Purchase, and other historical events. And of course, you can tell some of these ideas would materialize as Disneyland's New Orleans Square and the Haunted Mansion. Now, Walt Disney always had plans for a Haunted Mansion, even before Disneyland opened in California in 1955. But the Haunted Mansion concept was refined in the Riverfront project plans. it even included a stretching room elevator taking guests down to the illusion below, the way the attraction was built years later in Disneyland. And I hope I didn't destroy any magic there yeah. when I mentioned that. You did, so. <laughs> so. Now, a unique component of the town square would be cutting-edge light technology, allowing the area to change from morning to night over the course of the day. And it would even reflect different... Um, Weather conditions. Oh
1: well, they're all. And, and was there also mm-hmm. supposed to be bioluminescence?
0: <laughs> well, I was thinking, is it Church Street in downtown Orlando, whatever they call it, that has something like that I know in Las Vegas they have an area that that is like this, yeah, where it's covered, yeah. And I thought there was a place in Orlando too, mm. but I'm not sure. I might be wrong with that. So anyway. Um, Walt stressed that the facility's primary function would be to entertain, but it would also have to educate. So other planned attractions included a Lewis and Clark adventure, which is a ride based on the travels of Lewis and Clark expeditions. This attraction was later planned for Disney's America Project in Virginia, which was also never built. Um Audio animatronic figures portraying Missouri legends like Lewis and Clark, Mark Twain, and Napoleon, and others involved in the Louisiana Purchase and westward expansion. There would be a ride based on folk legend Mike Fink. A ride based on folk legend Davy Crockett, where children would wander through caves. Now, here's an interesting one a Western riverboat ride, which combined a boat ride with a runaway mine train inside a large enclosure. Now, this may have influenced the design for Walt Disney World's Thunder Mesa and the Western River Expedition, which were never built, and the Big Thunder Mountain Railway. Mm. There would be an attraction based on the Merrimack Caves of Caverns of Missouri, and there would be two Sir Karama theaters, with at least one of which would show a film about St. Louis. One theater would be built to resemble a Mississippi River showboat. There'd be a bird room, and I couldn't find anything on that. I don't know if it would be a incarnation of the Tiki yeah. Room or what. So, um, an, exp- an explorable pirate ship, an old-style opera house, a water wheel, and a wishing well.
1: You have me completely sold on this place. I mean, I've obviously <laughs> heard of the St. Louis project before, but I, I didn't know that there was this kind of level of planning that actually went into it, and that there was all these... Amazing things that were planned. Even, I mean, even though some stuff, like you've already said, pirates and the haunted mansion ended up coming to be. It just they this would have been amazing.
0: This this came so close to being built. I mean, the blueprints are online. I mean, you can find them. I need to go look. do a little digging. Yeah. So, um, so Walt estimated it would take at least four hours for guests to experience the entire facility. So um, Now, explaining his plans to put the facility in a single building, Walt stated that this would make it more useful throughout the whole year. Um, With it contained in a shell, we will have control of light and can put on quite a show. We will have our own sky and complete control of weather. Again, there's that control thing in there. Exactly. Um, Um, Now, the vertical arrangement of the development would allow visitors to move around on four above-ground levels, and at some point visitors may be 40 feet underground, but they won't know it. Um, This idea of controlling the environment by enclosing it would become a part of Walt Disney's original plan for the central area of Epcot, the Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. So Walt stressed that the exterior of the complex would be designed to architecturally complement the other new riverfront developments. And Walt was asked if he had considered building similar projects to other cities and replied, yes, but this is the first type of thing developed this way. Now, Walt refused to discuss the cost of the project or a deadline for construction. But to indicate his seriousness in the project, Walt assigned Marvin Davis, who had worked closely with Walt in designing Disneyland, to work on the plans for the project. But excitement about the St. Louis project was short-lived. In the following year, the project came to a halt. Negotiations between Disney executives and St. Louis officials foundered on the issue of funding. Remember how Walt kept emphasizing, we are going to build it, we are going to run it. He wanted total control. Well, St. Louis officials had assumed if Disney was going to own and operate Riverfront Square, he would also provide the money to build it. So I I can sort of see their point of view. (laughs) Yeah, I'm, I'm right there too. Yeah. Although Walt insisted on owning the project if it were going to carry the Disney name, the company did not want to financially invest in the project beyond offering design and operational services. Walt even expected the city to pay for construction and to reimburse him for operating costs out of the net profits of the operation. The city made a counteroffer. If Walt solely owned the project, he should pay for its construction with some financial incentives. So, um, so was with there City fin- sorry, was
1: there not any, uh, even potential talks about having other investors come in and help out with this as well?
0: Well, see, Walt had done that for Disneyland. yeah, and and rude the day that he did that because he didn't have control and and he was never going to do that again. Well. So so um, you know, they would have spot corporate sponsors, exactly. Yeah. but even with the corporate sponsorships, Walt had total control. Yeah. So, now, what city officials didn't realize was that the Disney organization was at the same time committing millions of dollars to purchase land in Central Florida. So investing large amounts of money into both central Florida, and the riverfront project would be a financial challenge for the Disney organization. So negotiations reportedly broke down and Walt finally indicated he had been offered thousands of acres of central Florida land at a very low price. Walt would pursue the St. Louis project if he could get a similar price on acreage in downtown St. Louis. So if this is true, Walt may have been making St. Louis an offer he knew they would have to refuse. I can't imagine
1: how he would have ever got downtown property at the exact same price. It's just unfeasible,
0: right, and so that's why I was thinking he was he needed to be out of the project, yeah. yep, and he wanted a safe face so so um by June of nineteen sixty five everyone involved with Riverfront Square were describing the project as neither dead nor alive. In reality, the prospects of building the project appeared so hopeless, city officials leased the proposed site to a surface parking lot company. (laughs) And in a final effort to save the project, St. Louis officials traveled to Burbank in July 1965, and their discussion centered on the project's potential $30 to $50 million cost— and if the proposed facility was large enough to accommodate the 25,000 daily guests needed to make the project work. After this Burbank meeting, reports indicated the project was most likely dead.
1: Oh.
0: And this was confirmed on July 13, 1965, when Walt Disney Productions president Roy o. Disney and vice presidents Card Walker and Don Tatum made a final visit to St. Louis to meet privately with project officials at the Bel Air East, and issued a joint statement to the local press. We were asked to try to develop a major attraction having the impact on the St. Louis area of a Disneyland. We suggested at the outset that a project of that scope, in size and cost, might well prove difficult to accomplish due to a number of imponderable factors. Such has proved to be the case. Each group had complimentary statements to say about the other and expressed regret that the St. Louis project would not become a reality. But the economic analysis of the project by Buzz Price indicated from the beginning that although the St. Louis project could be self-supporting, it was not likely to generate much profit. We couldn't get it up above 5% return on investment, Buzz explained So taking into account its low profitability expectations and the fact that Walt Disney spent so much time developing this project indicates how much he really wanted to build it. So what was built on the project site? When the Gateway Arch was completed on October 1965 and Bush Stadium opened in May 1966, the proposed site of Riverfront Square was used for parking. St. Louis mayor Alfonso Cervantes led a campaign to have the Spanish pavilion pavilion, from the New York World's Fair uh, moved to the riverfront square site. The Spanish pavilion had received several awards for excellence in contemporary European architecture during the fair, and Cervantes believed installing the pavilion in the downtown would be a tribute to the Spanish heritage of St. Louis. The pavilion was used as an exhibit and performing arts space, but lost money until developer Don Breckenridge constructed a 25-story hotel tower above the structure. The Breckenridge Pavilion Hotel opened in June 1976. The hotel, later a Marriott, is now the Hilton St. Louis at the Ballpark the Spanish pavilion endures as the lobby and main public area of the hotel. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and it's beautiful if you look at the photos yeah. uh, that are online for it. So, Craig, do you think Riverfront Square, if built, would have been successful? Yeah, I I actually think
1: that it would have, uh, just taking into consideration that, if it would have been built and having the elements like Pirates of the Caribbean and Haunted Mansion being in there, yeah, we would have lost out with them on Disneyland most likely. But, um, I think just those two attractions alone, uh, you, you think about how many people, uh, take one of those as their favorite attractions at Disneyland and Walt Disney world. I think it obviously, uh, it would have brought people in and, uh, it could have done a lot for St. Louis at the time. I, I, I mean, that's just my opinion. I don't know really that much about the city. And I, I, it just fascinates me to want to, I want to learn more about it now. See, (laughs) see if they did make this huge mistake by not being able to, to really work things out here.
0: Yeah. I looked up to see what, uh, how many visitors they get to, to the um, Gateway Arch area. Because, you know, they need, Buzz Price said they needed 25,000 daily visitors to make it profitable. Mm -hmm. And so it, I, the only th- There wasn't a lot out there on the web, but it said in 2012, um, 2.5 million people visited the St. Louis Arch. So, you have to think that a lot of those people would have also gone to Riverfront Square since it was next to it. Yeah. The, the most visitors that the arch ever had were 4.6 million, and that's when it opened in 1966. Yeah. So, it never... Got up to that goal. It's always fluctuated between three million to two million every year. Yeah,
1: but at the same time, if it would have had that that Disney attraction right in there, that would have taken it over the edge. They would have they would have had bigger numbers than that going there.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, I tend to agree. So now, but the other interesting thing is sort of to look on the flip side, though, is that Disneyland and most of the Disney parks that have followed are primarily focused on ideas and concepts we don't see in our everyday lives. And so, generally, Disney hasn't succeeded nearly as often when they're making parks and attractions, celebrating history over adventure. Uh, You know, Disney's um, America in Virginia never got built. Even the original Disney's California Adventure, you could argue, was based a little more on reality than fantasy. Um, you know, little nods like Main Street USA are nice, but historic attractions like great moments with Mr. Lincoln, the Hall of Presidents, and the American Adventure no longer draw the audiences as before. So, you know, people visit the Disney parks largely to, largely to escape the real world and not get immersed in the past. And
1: that's sad, because as I get older, I love doing stuff like great moments with Mr. Lincoln, Hall of Presidents, and American Adventure.
0: I- Me too. Uh, I never, I never miss an opportunity to visit those when I'm in their parks. Yep, yep. I, I feel, I feel committed to visiting them. No, especially for me,
1: uh, Hall of Presidents, since that's,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, that's my home one here. Uh, I, I love hitting great moments with Mr. Lincoln whenever I can too. But Hall of Presidents, I, I am that type of person that if you go to Disney World with me, I will try to drag you in there.
0: Oh, I'm the same way. I think it's magnificent. It is. And don't you sort of look forward to the next presidential election when you know a two-term president is up because it means we'll get a new figure? Uh,
1: it, i <laughs> I agree, however, if a Donald Trump figure ever makes its way into the hall of presidents i I, I will just lose it. Um, and that' has nothing <laughs> that has nothing to do with politics even at all. I just.
0: <laughs> yeah, his the the speech will be interesting. <laughs> uh, it just I
1: cannot see it. Plus,ing that attraction, they yeah. they would need to he take might, it a he, new direction. He,
0: he might insult George Washington's wig, probably. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so um, so with Walt Disney and St. Louis officials unable to come to a financial agreement over Riverfront Square, a Midwestern Disneyland in Waltz, Missouri was over before it began. Unbeknownst to all, but a select few, Walt's search for a project site was actually gaining momentum nearly 1,000 miles away to the southeast of St. Louis. And that will be our topic next week in Episode 3 titled, The Search Ends and the Mystery Unfolds. We'll discuss the pressure Walt was under to either move forward or reject the proposals to build another park. And after a November 1963 plane tour of potential sites, Walt made his decision. And Craig and I will examine that tour and how the Disney company secretly moved forward with the project and how it became public.
1: Yeah, and I feel like this is where I'm going to start actually knowing more of these details, too.
0: <laughs> Probably. Yeah. yeah. This is more of the common knowledge. But if you would like to learn more about Walt Disney and Project Florida, consider the books I used as some of my resources for this episode. Project Future, the inside story behind the creation of Walt Disney World by Chad Denver Emerson. Walt and the Promise of Progress City by Sam Genoa An American original Walt Disney by Bob Thomas. Since the World Began, Walt Disney World, The First 25 Years by Jeff Curdy. Walt Disney's Missouri, The Roots of a Creative Genius by Brian Burns, Dan Vietz, and Robert W. Butler. Hmm. So, Craig, until our next episode, where can our listeners find you?
1: Uh, I would say probably a library, trying to track down a copy (laughs) of Walt Disney's Missouri, because I have never heard of that one, of everything that you just listed off, and I... I need to learn more about this at this point, but, yeah. um, and that book I believe
0: is still out there and available. Okay.
1: I got to look it up as soon as we're done doing this, but, uh, no,
0: it's, cause it's at the Walt Disney family museum.
1: <laughs> oh, fantastic. That's easier to track down then. Um, well, you know, again, still can't uh, find me at my house, but all over social media. So on Twitter, I am Teleclaster, and, Again, if you can't find me, then uh, look me up by one of the other Diz people. And I'm also on Facebook as well as my personal Instagram, which is the same as my Twitter. And uh, then, of course, I highly recommend following all of the Diz on social media uh, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Um, And yeah, I'm just I'm all over the place with those. And then, of course, you'll find me on the Walt Disney World podcast and the Universal podcast that we do every week.
0: And you can find me every Sunday night on the Diz Unplugged Podcast Disneyland Edition with my good friends Tom Bell, Nancy Johnson, Mary Jo malata Willie, and Tony Spatel, where we have lots of fun talking about Waltz Park that started it all. Um, Listen to us live on Mixler, Sundays at 8 p.m. Pacific Time, Disneyland Time, and you can download our three weekly shows each Monday and Tuesday. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his Imagineers in Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes. And, Craig, where can our
1: listeners find these shows? DisUnplug.com. That's where you'll find show show notes and links to everything important that you hear about in this show and all of the other shows that we have out there.
0: And you can contact me at Michael at WDWinfo.com. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter at, at MBowling121. And I'm on Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. So until next time, thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney.